Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for this portion of your holy, inspired, life-giving, all-sufficient, truthful word. Lord, we long to hear from you this morning. We long to be transformed by the truths of Scripture. We pray that you would send your spirit now to give each one of us the gift of understanding. Open our eyes and our hearts to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We need your help this morning, more than we even know or imagine. So help us by your Spirit's power. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The summer of 1967 was known as the Summer of Love. That summer, hippies from all across America converged on San Francisco to the Haight-Asbury District to celebrate love all summer. That same summer, that same year actually, uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, members of the Beatles, wrote a song, and the song is called All You Need Is Love. And the chorus goes like this, all you need is love, all you need is love, all you need is love, love, love is all you need. Love, 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 love. I'm not done. All you need is love, all you need is love, all you need is love, love is all you need. Now many people, including the Beatles, believe that love will solve all the world's problems. But what is love? Is love being nice to people? Uh, Is love a feeling or an emotion? Is love the same thing as tolerance? Is love more than sexual attraction? Before love can solve any problems, before you and I can celebrate the transforming power of love, we have to understand what in the world love is. And that brings us to our text this morning. Jesus describes in this passage a new kind of love. He doesn't just describe it. He commands that all of his disciples everywhere love others with this new type of love. So if you're a disciple of Christ this morning, he is commanding that you and I love with this new type of love. But what exactly is this new type of love? Before we get there, let me pause and talk about the context of the words Jesus spoke here. As I mentioned last week, Jesus is in the upper room with with the 12. Um, He is about to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Uh, The next few chapters of John are going to record for us his teaching in the upper room. He has just washed the disciples' feet and dried them, and now he's going to talk about this new type of love with them before he gives up his life, demonstrating that love for us. So, This story uh, about this new type of love unfolds for us uh, in three scenes. Judas rejects love, Jesus requires love, and then Peter renounces love. So first, Judas rejects love. What can we learn from Judas' rejection of Jesus, who is love incarnate? Well, Judas' rejection of Jesus there's something very important, and that is it fulfills God's plan. Look with me at John 13, 18 to 21. Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. And there he's talking about who he chose to be his disciples. Then he says, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. 
He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is a reference to Psalm 41.19. Psalm 41.19 says this. David writes, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. This verse was written by King David a thousand years before Jesus. And King David is lamenting the fact that one of his close friends and advisors has betrayed him. And Jesus Christ, the true king, the offspring of David, is basically saying that that verse written by David a thousand years beforehand is about to be fulfilled through Judas. Verse 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, that is, that I am God. He's basically saying, because I know the future, that someone's gonna betray me, that's proof that I am God. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, there's so much we could say about these verses. There's a lot of theology packed into these verses, but I want to focus on verse 19. Again, verse 19 says, I'm telling you this now. I'm telling you who is about to betray me now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus knows that in a few minutes, Judas is about to betray him. How does he know that? (laughs) Because he's God. And his knowledge of the future proves that he's God. He's repeatedly warned the disciples that one of them will betray him. So why does he tell them this now? Because he knows that Judas's duplicity and betrayal may somehow shake their faith. They may even be tempted to think that Judas has outwitted Jesus. They need to be assured, and so do you and I, that Jesus controls everything, and he knows everything about everything. He knows what's going to happen in your life in 31 minutes and in 31 years. He knows everything, and he's working all things according to his specific, definite plan. Jesus is not a powerless pawn in the struggle caught between Israel and Rome. He is the Son of God, and he is marching to the cross in complete control of every single circumstance in the world, working all things for good. So, Judas' rejection of Jesus is simply fulfilling God's ultimate plan, God using all things for good. In the mid-1970s, a course taught by Dr. Andrew Lincoln at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary quite literally changed Tim Keller's life. Some of you know Tim Keller is a famous author and preacher who, who pastored a church in New York City for about 30 years, and he describes the fact that this particular course had a radical influence on his life. But here's the thing. Dr. Lincoln was not supposed to teach that course back in the 70s. The reason why is because he was having all kinds of visa issues, and he could not find a way to get to Boston in time to teach this course. He was supposed to be gone the whole year because of his visa issues. So the dean of students um, asked the students to pray that Dr. Lincoln would be able to cut through the red tape to get his visa. 
Tim Keller writes this. At the last minute, somebody cut through the red tape. He, Dr. Lincoln, came and I fell under his influence. Do you know why the red tape was cut? The dean of the seminary was on his knees praying about how we were going to get this guy over here when Mike Ford, Gerald Ford's son, walked in and asked him what he was praying for. Mike Ford was a student at the seminary at that time. Do you know why Mike Ford was able to cut the red tape? Because his father was the president. Do you know why his father was the president? Because Nixon resigned. Do you know why Nixon resigned? Because of the Watergate scandal. Do you know why there was a Watergate scandal? Because one day, a guard noticed in the Watergate building a particular door ajar that should have been closed. Tim Keller surmises that his life was changed by a professor in Boston because a door was left open at a hotel in Washington, D.C. several years beforehand. (laughs) Was that coincidence? No. God controls every single detail of your life, my life, and the life of Judas Iscariot. Every detail is under his sovereign sway. God was sovereignly using this betrayal by Judas of Jesus to work all things for good. If Christ had not been betrayed, he wouldn't have died on the cross for our sins. God is sovereign. He is in control. He knew what Judas was going to do. He planned this event, although he's not the author of evil. What hardships are you facing right now? What details of your life right now are hard, are causing you to question God's ways? God controls everything. And he is working all the details, even the hard details, in your life and my life, for our good and his glory. Judas' rejection of Jesus fulfilled God's plan. In addition, Judas' rejection of Jesus troubled Christ's soul. Look with me at verse 21 and 22. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. The disciples had no clue whom Christ was talking about, which means that Judas was a pretty good faker. No one suspected him at all of treachery or betrayal. He looked and talked just like the rest, which is kind of sobering and scary. Verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And this is a reference to John, the writer of John's gospel. Uh, he didn't want to refer to his own name when telling the story, so he refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. Verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So Peter looks at John and says, John, ask Jesus who he's talking about. Who's going to betray Jesus? Who is it? Verse 25. So that disciple, 
John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what, are you, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas was, had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Again, a lot we could say about this, but let me go back to verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. He was wounded. He was hurt that his own friend betrayed him, even though he knew it was going to happen, even though he controlled all the details. Judas still betrayed him volitionally, and Jesus was troubled. Remember, he was fully God and fully man. He had feelings, and he was hurt and wounded by this betrayal. He was greatly troubled, which raises the question, how many of you have been betrayed or rejected by a close friend? I bet most of us. Betrayal happens when someone intentionally uses a relationship of trust or intimacy to hurt you or to steal from you or to wound you in some way. Maybe you've been betrayed by a parent or rejected by a close group of friends, left out, snubbed, betrayed by a business partner who embezzles money, maybe betrayed by a pastor, betrayed by a child, a sibling, a close friend, a boss, or worst of all, betrayed by a spouse. When you are rejected or betrayed by those you love, remember, the King of kings and Lord of lords knows exactly what that feels like. He was fully human. He can sympathize with you and, I, you and I in our betrayals and our rejections. When you're rejected or betrayed, go to him. Ask him for grace and strength to love and forgive. He knows what it's like. He sympathizes and he helps. Judas rejects love. He rejects Jesus, love incarnate. He is not the example of love for you and I to follow. So what does love look like? That brings us to the second point. First, Judas rejects love. Second, Jesus requires love. But what kind of love does he require? He requires a new type of love or a new kind of love. Look with me at verses 31 to 34. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. He's referring here to his glory at the cross. The cross is the place in all of Scripture where God's glory shines the brightest. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. 
you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, how is this command new? Because all throughout the Bible, God commands us to love others. It's very clear in the Old Testament. So how is this command new? It's new because Jesus says multiple times, you're to love others as I have loved you. What kind of love is that? Christ's love for the disciples is a costly, sacrificial love. He just washed all their dirty feet and then wiped them dry. But more importantly, he's about to wash their souls by going to the cross and suffering and dying in their place. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate cost. He gives up his life. This love he's requiring of us is a costly love. It cost him something. It cost him his life. And he expects us to love others in such a way that it's costly, it's sacrificial, it's painful at times. After the USS Pueblo was captured by the North Koreans, the 82 surviving crew members were thrown into brutal captivity. In one instance, 13 of the men were required to sit in a rigid manner around a table for several hours. After several hours, the door violently burst open and a North Korean guard stomped into the room, took his gun, and beat the man in the first chair within an inch of his life. The next day, each man had to sit in the same spot. Again, the door was thrown open, and the man in the first chair was beaten once again with the butt of this soldier's rifle. On the third day, it happened again to the same man. Knowing this man could not survive much longer, another younger soldier took his place. When the door was flung open, the guard automatically beat the new victim senseless. For weeks, each day, a new man, a new soldier, a new comrade in arms stepped forward to sit in that chair of punishment, knowing full well what would happen. At last, the guards gave up in exasperation. These soldiers loved each other with incredibly costly love. They were beaten with the butt of a rifle. It was sacrificial, it was costly, yet how much more has Christ loved us? You and I all deserve to be hanging on a cross right now because of our sins. That's how bad sin is, that's how holy God is. Yet Jesus subbed us off the cross took our place on the cross, took the punishment that we deserved, and it cost him everything. That's the measure of love, and that's what God asks of us. And of course, this is impossible, apart from the Spirit's enabling power. Yet God requires that you and I love each other with costly love. And by the way, he's talking here primarily about loving the saints this way. He says to the disciples that they're called to love one another this way. Now, we're called to love everyone, but there's a special love we're supposed to have for the saints. Now, 
What does this love actually look like for you and I on a daily basis? Well, the Apostle Paul describes this love for us in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. He says this, love is patient. That can be very costly at times, can it? Love is patient and kind. Think about your siblings. Think about your spouse. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, which again can be incredibly costly, especially in the context of marriage. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Costly love is constantly giving others the benefit of the doubt. Costly love is constantly assuming the best intentions and the best motives of others. Costly love is not always suspicious of others. It rarely thinks, why did they say that? What is behind that comment? Some evil intent. No. Costly love refuses to jump to conclusions. It doesn't judge motives. It's kind. Costly love freely gives money to others. Someone just gave a check to the Benevolence Fund at GCF North for $30,000. That's costly. <laughs> I say that to inspire you. There's people here that really love others in a costly way. By the way, if you have any benevolence needs, that fund is well stocked. <laughs> because people here at GCF love to give Costly love sacrifices time and freedom to hang out with the people that no one else wants to hang out with. That person who really annoys you at church. Maybe it's me. I don't know. <laughs> or that kid at youth group that no one else wants to hang out with for whatever reason. Costly love is pressing in inconveniencing itself. Costly love forgives even when deeply wounded. Costly love sacrifices a Sunday morning by volunteering to serve in the nursery, on the greeting team, on the production team. Who can you love this week in this body of believers? It'd be awesome if you asked yourself, Okay, who's the person who's hardest for me to love? And then intentionally, aggressively went after that person. So if someone calls you in the church this week, <laughs> yeah, never mind. But I think you know what I mean. And did you, do you think that you and I were lovable to Jesus? No. All we do is sin and break his commands. Yet he still presses into us, loves us, and sacrifices for us. He's the model. What type of love does Jesus require? A costly love. What happens when this requirement is obeyed? Well, the answer is the world notices. Verse 35, 
By this, by this type of love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Francis Schaeffer wrote a famous little booklet called The Mark of the Christian, where he describes this type of love. When you see a big brown truck pull up to your house with yellow letters on the side, and someone get out of the truck wearing a brown uniform, carrying a package, you think to yourself, this person works for UPS. Why? They have all the marks of UPS. When you see a car driving around Spokane, I've seen this car, and the car is uh, white, green, and blue. On the back, there's a huge Seahawk logo, and the, the license plate says, 12th man. You think to yourself, this person is a Seahawk fan. Why? They have all the marks. Or when you see someone walk into the church building wearing tight Wranglers, a huge bell buckle, a cowboy hat, and they just got out of a, a big truck that was blaring Hank Williams Jr., you think that person is from Texas. I was going to say Deer Park. <laughs> Texas, Texas. They have all the marks of a Texan. So what are the marks of a Christian? Certain clothing? No. A certain hairdo? A cross necklace? Not necessarily. Carrying around a huge Bible? Maybe a fish tattoo? A fish bumper sticker? Or a mug that says, I heart Jesus? Are those the marks of a Christian? No. What is the one identifying mark of a Christian. Costly love for the saints. That's what identifies the Christian. Faith in Christ and love for the saints. I love apologetics. I read apologetics books all the time. It's my hobby. I think there's really, really reasonable reasons to believe that Christianity is true. Yet, the greatest apologetic is not an argument or a series of lectures or a good book to give someone. The greatest apologetic by far is love. Love. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Costly, sacrificial love. Churches try all kinds of crazy programs to win the lost, but the tried and true method is prayer, boldness, love, and more love. Now, we know we're supposed to love others, but we don't always excel in love, which brings us to the third and final scene. So first, Jesus, Judas rejects love. Second, Jesus requires love. And third, Peter renounces love. Peter's about to renounce Christ, who is love incarnate. Look with me at verse 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Keep that phrase in mind. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. 
Peter is undoubtedly sincere, but he does not know himself that well. He places far too much confidence in his own abilities, which most of us do most of the time. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow, will not crow till you've denied me three times. <laughs> Jesus tells Peter, Peter, in a short time, you're going to renounce me. You're going to betray me. You're going to reject me because you want safety and respect. But eventually, Jesus restores Peter. Here's the good news. Although Peter will renounce Christ, Christ will never renounce Peter. How do we know? Because after Peter rejects Jesus, Jesus forgives him and then he reinstates him into gospel ministry. And we read about this at the end of the Gospel of John, after the crucifixion and the resurrection. John 21, 17 and 19. He, that is Jesus, said to him, Peter, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Here's the good news. Jesus is an incredibly merciful, loving, forgiving God. He even forgives those that renounce him or forsake him or abandon him. And make no mistake, if you and I were in the right circumstances, we too would be very tempted to renounce Jesus. If you think otherwise, you're naive. But Jesus, who is incredibly loving, forgave Peter. And then he empowered Peter. How do we know? In verse 36 of chapter 13, he says, Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. He's going to the cross. But after, after the cross, you will follow. What did he mean? After the cross, the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. And Jesus knew the Holy Spirit would empower Peter and you and me to follow Jesus even when it's incredibly costly. The Holy Spirit gives all of us boldness and courage and confidence and power to follow Jesus and not renounce him. On this side of the cross and Pentecost, we have everything we need to be bold, courageous witnesses for Jesus. Even if you think you're the most cowardly person you know, you're wrong. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you, but you've got to ask him for help. Say, Jesus, help me not renounce you in this situation at the office. Help me be bold and courageous. And even if you renounce him, he forgives. How do we know? He forgave Peter. But he wants to empower us to be bold and courageous and to love. 
Here's the good news. Although our love may grow cold for Jesus, although we may renounce him, he forgives. He loves and he empowers. The Beatles sang, all you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. Were they right? Yes. All we need is love. But we need, very specifically, the love that God the Father showers on us through his son, Jesus Christ, in his life, and his death, and his resurrection. That's all the love we need. And the more we understand that love, the love that he has for us, the love the triune God has for us, the more you and I will be motivated to love others in a costly, sacrificial way. Let's pray.